0: Welcome to The Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to.
1: Here you'll find clinicians and researchers discussing cutting-edge research from the embodied relational sciences, explaining why and how people work together to find healing.
0: Thanks for checking out this podcast. The Evidence-Based Therapist is a project of Think Beyond a listener-funded media house focused on connecting humans through therapy and art. To keep this podcast going, we'd love for you to support us on Patreon by searching patreon.com thinkbeyondhealing in your favorite web browser. And don't forget to check out our new merch by going to our website at connectbeyondhealing.com and clicking on the merchandise tab. Hey, welcome back to The Evidence-Based Therapist. Caleb and I were just talking that this is the first time we're not going to be able to do the intro.
1: Yeah, we're, we're separated by a, a giant chasm of a two-second delay.
0: <laughs> and the internet.
1: <laughs> and the internet, yeah. Yeah, so by the time that it takes my voice to get warped into ones and zeros and then re presented Ooh, interesting connection to today, Ooh, interesting. gets represented to your ears, there's a two-second delay, and so we can't say the intro together, which...
0: Yeah, we practiced. Yeah,
1: we tried. <laughs> we tried <laughs> to account for the two-second delay, and we still couldn't. Couldn't,
0: couldn't yeah. happen. So I don't even... I feel weird about even trying it. Um, you I know what you this can, podcast is if you've listened yeah. to it. <laughs> if this is your first
1: time listening to Evidence-Based Therapist, uh, Usually we have such a fun intro that we say together and hopefully have other people say it with us. I don't know if they are, but we find it fun. Maybe we should try
0: it and then it'll show up on the recording (laughs) as disformulated and we can do it. All right. Are you ready? We're going to do it. There's
1: so many interesting paradigms that this delay is correlative that we've already used representing and disformulated. Yeah, and even talking about it, but
0: so welcome to the evidence-based therapist, where we read, where we read, you don't have, so you don't have to, but <laughs> but
1: we shouldn't we would even love try. It if you did. Okay, you tried. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. The, my, my my words didn't make it to you in time because we're outside of the normal time. Anyway, all right. So today. <laughs> The final uh, article of the series, which we've been doing for you faithful listeners, <laughs> who I hope you've trekked along in this uh, deep neuroscience dive, where we've been looking at a series of articles by Coziel et al. That are looking at the large scale brain systems, subcortical relationships and and brain processes, and how those interact in a systemic way to create our understanding of Who we are, who others are, and who the world is, or what the world is, and for those
0: that came along, I do want to share the acknowledgement of the authors of the article because they start that summary at the very end of this article, and I'm just going to read it because if you've been following along with this series, you deserve this admonition (laughs) as well. So it says, "This is how they start the summary, which is ending the entire four article series." They say the patient diligent reader or listener. They don't say that. I just added that who has read all four articles in this series has come a long way in assimilating and modifying their knowledge about brain behavior relationships. So that's Mm. you. That's us. We did it. We're here. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Which like,
1: yeah, it feels, it feels really hard to cram into one episode all of the practical implications of um what everything we've talked about could could mean for therapists for clients and then for the ther- therapist client relationship like in the room yeah. um but I, I think it's worth a shot because this last this last uh, article that they give and again cozyol is coming more from the neuropsychological neuropsycho- world so their practical applications is to the world of neuropsychological testing and administration um but i think there's there's so many and i was saying this to you bridger before we started there's so many like one-liners that Mm -hmm. feel like it's written by a therapist and they're just like it's so applicable across the board so um i'm excited to to have some sense of some summarization and practical
0: app yeah same. And this article is, again, the last in the, the four-part mm-hmm. series from Cozy old Barker, Rin, and Joyce. And in this uh, last article, it's called Large-Scale Brain Systems and Subcortical Relationships, Colon Practical Applications. And just as Caleb was referring, the practical applications in this regard are for neuro psychologists who are doing different assessments to determine functional connectivity and any structural um, deficits that might be there neurophysiologically. Um, But what we're going to do is kind of build on the momentum of the uh, conversation so far and help contextualize this for the therapist, because there are so many implications for this reformulation of uh, brain behavior relationships
1: yeah yeah i think the the first place that sticks out to me to jump into is actually how they jump in which is to review what the goal of these articles was Mm. and it's they have this sentence that just feels like it makes it sets the anchor for where we've explored in the past four episodes they say the functional architecture of the brain evolved and developed to serve the needs of interactive behavior. And I, I, I love that as we've gone throughout this series, they've looked at the seven large scale brain systems that kind of gave us an overview of those systems. Then they looked at how those systems have functional hubs that are oriented towards functional connectivity between these systems for the sake of adaptive behavior. Then they looked at how those systems are reliant upon information that is subcortically or unconsciously divided and decided upon through the basal ganglia and the cerebrocerebellar system. And then now it's they kind of land the ship where they started, which is how does all of that information how is it um making sense in the interact interaction effect of us as humans being in a world of relationships? Um, yeah. And I just think that's like such a it feels so the word interactive feels so important. Um,
0: Oh, for sure. And that to me really highlights why this dive into neuroscience was important for this podcast. Because again, we're not saying every therapist needs to understand neuroanatomy just because we're, we're Mm. talking about it because the function of those systems is paramount in the presentations we see and what sense we make of it in our own system, And mm-hmm. I love how this article, kind of like Christopher Nolan, the director' style," like, really is kind of the beginning of the conversation, in a way. Yeah. yeah. but at the end, and that is the whole reason we need to take a look at what has been said neuropsychologically and functionally, is because we've historically understood it from a linear modular, self-contained organismic perspective. Yeah, and what, yeah. What is shown now is that really through this parallel process of commentary and nuancing or, or really updating, this series has shown that actually we're a nonlinear <laughs> systemic or network based interactive organism. Yeah. Yeah. They use
1: the language, and this is very cognitive science, neuroscience oriented, but they use the language of serial order processing. One yeah. to two, two to three, three to four, four to the outcome. And that's how classic cognitive neuroscience saw the brain functioning. And I love that you're, you made reference to what we talked about, I think, two episodes ago where they actually use the language of looping yeah as like a construct to understand this nonlinear progression, which is such a, a paradox that we're progressing in a nonlinear way,
0: yeah in our development, yeah, we're moving forward by going back,
1: yeah, constantly yeah, yeah, oh, that's so beautiful and i I, I do think I want to make a note of because when when we start talking in, in specifically in this article about the neuropsychological testing, one of the th- one of the suggestions that they make, and this is kind of like a teaser, is that they make the suggestion of the administ- administrator getting involved in the test
0: mm-hmm.
1: by different things of like labeling or identifying and in different interactive. Uh, participation in the test with a with the um, person who's taking
0: the participant, and which is not supposed to happen from no. the traditional neuropsychological administration perspective.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and to take this all the way back, this is connecting with kind of the desire that you and I talked about, Bridger, when we were like, okay, we got to the end of this like long discussion about like, okay, EBT is RCTs, random control trials. The world of EBT, it's just, it's a lot. There, there's so much more than what is assumed to be there in yeah. the field. And that we might be studying things that we don't really understand. Like the the amount of like um, exclusion criteria and different things in the process of getting these studies done doesn't always allow for there to be the, the complexity of a healing experience. And it may... Kind of funnel that out, and I think these authors are, are noting the same thing in the neuropsychological world of like these test administrations might be missing some of the complexities of what what could be called like an evidence based neuropsycho, neuropsychological assessment. We're also on the same kind of train of like, yeah, it's the evidence based of treatment of therapy,
0: yeah. And to double back or apply that sentiment that. You know, the whole kind of spoiler alert, I guess, but this article kind of leads the reader to neuropsychological administrators should be involved in the administration of the test with the patient. That's kind of the update that they're suggesting in simplest form. You can get a better
1: reading by being interactive.
0: Exactly. And that that's actually more indicative of the findings you're hoping to discover. Rather than just watching the patient fail or pass the test on their own. And what an incredible allegory for the counseling or therapeutic, you know, psychotherapy dynamic that most of us have been trained, I think, in a very similar way to say we're kind of out of the process. We're trying to be with the client, yes, but in a way that makes it their process. And we direct them then to take it out and do more of their process on their own. But I think what this is showing, again, is that really the field of any field that is concerned with the structure or function of the human organism, if we're going to get a meaningful assessment or understanding of that system and how it then can move towards greater levels of health, we need to be involved with it. Mm -hmm. not standing against it
1: yeah yeah and what what they talk about at one point is like the the executive functioning in some of these dynamics where historically that was conscious explicit um articulation Mm -hmm. what's seen as executive functioning that nuancing with this new idea of the system oriented view of the brain kind of kind of changes executive functioning but then changes how like some people don't have executive functioning deficits they have the potential for executive functioning um to come online or to to increase functional connectivity but there's a deficit in interactive behavior interactive Mm -hmm. movement movement that is made and then reflected upon Mm -hmm. which is a fascinating shift and i would say like from a from a person who's trained in the medical model, that is like the current counselor world. I mean, we come from a wellness model, but it's still very ripe <laughs> with medical model language. Like, yes, that's it's a it's a posture that I think these authors are taking to the neuropsychological realm that we take in trying to depathologize yeah. clients of saying, yes. like, "No, nah, you don't have a you don't have like a total deficit or inability for executive functioning. There's just an interaction effect." That we haven't quite found, found <laughs> figured out yet. There's a, there's a lack in functional
0: connectivity between, not yes. in. To yeah. me, it's the difference between saying you are depressed versus you have depression. Mm. Like even the, the posture of, it, I don't care if it quote unquote qualifies for a clinical diagnosis. The posture is that that system is experiencing a state of affect Uh, you know, of, of hypo affect activation that Mm -hmm. to, that is communicative, not of just this underlying, um, you know, clinical imbalance or, or, uh, um, some type of neurochemical imbalance, but it's, it's communication about how that person finds themselves in relation to their world. It's not a stamp. It's a way of asking an invitation.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which like, that's if you this first and second article in this um, series the ones talking about the large scope brain networks the the DMN the default mode network just feels like so important to understand and to have empathy for mm-hmm. in understanding and conceptualizing a client's experience something like depression where in the authors will talk they talk about uh, during the course of any day we, Quickly alternate our functioning by engaging in automatic routine behavior with episodes of conscious cognitive control to adjust to dynamically changing situational demands. The, The idea there, though, is that the brain is in a constant state of neural processing. It never goes offline, quote unquote. So in its constant state of processing, it makes a lot of sense that there would be a like reliance on a on a state that keeps them most functioning in a prolonged period of time, rather than risk shifting into that conscious cognitive control to then experience another letdown and have to kind of retreat back into the, this default mode that was working in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm, that reminds me about you know, it, it feels like it's become a crux of their argument that reward is so important to understand essential. what is reward essential. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, to understand how the how the brain deciphers when to shift on some of these alternate systems, like the ventral attention network and the dorsal attention network, through the sensor through the sensory motor and the audiovisual systems, but like what has historically been most rewarding in a way is a, is a crux for whether or not we're in our default kind of routine behavior automaticity, or are we clicking out into these conscious Mm -hmm. cognitive controls to adapt? Um, I was listening to, Oh, go ahead.
0: Well, I was just going to say that the, the launching pad of this article's contribution to the larger series that we're in is that the implications of the neuropsychology field as it was when this was published saw serial order processing as the means of meaningful assessment and intervention. That, mm. well, we can only really know what's conscious and then what's below that we can test with these different um, these different instruments, but then it's on the uh, assessor To score that assessment and give basically information to the treatment plan. Mm -hmm. It it wasn't seen as an interactive process that it's communication from the client or patient to the assessor, the the neuropsychologist to then reflexively reincorporate back into the dynamic with that client or patient.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, why? I'm curious, like for you, why that feels important. Uh, the shift in assessment, why that feels important away from a serial order processing into this interactive effect.
0: Yeah, I think it, without launching into abstraction of the difference between a qualitative and a quantitative paradigm, but to me, it shows an. In, it, a completely different means of encountering the other. So mm-hmm. if I look at you and say you're the result of serial order processing, that means that I really don't have to wonder what's going on inside. I wonder what's coming out from you. Mm-hmm. And then I work with that. Yeah. The shift then is if we go into what they say is to complement the traditional serial order processing, we, can now have curiosity and trust that parts of us are interacting far below the conscious, far below what's only coming out of you. And that yeah. that dynamic is, is really fundamental to whatever is going to come out of the us.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, uh, yeah, the, re- yeah, I, I guess I'll say the reason I ask that question is because I feel like, that is a question that could just be its own podcast episode entirely yeah. of, and I think that's what this article is aimed at it. It it's giving very practical examples in the neuropsychological world, but the idea that, and, and they give, uh, quotations or, or connotations to this of like 95% of behavior is implicit and automatic and carries meaning. As I was listening to, a. The hidden source, uh, Mark Solms's new book, mm-hmm. and and in it he he talks about like this the trajectory in neuroscience where um, behavioral and cognitive um, science neuroscience was placing the value to the brain in the outside world, yes, whereas affective neuroscience is looking to place the value of things inside of the self in. In the the way the brain is making complex meaning to adapt to the outside world, yes. and I think that's they maybe to get ground us a little bit into the article, the first section where they're talking about the interaction of movement, thinking, and large scale brain systems. They they give they kind of give a review back to the first article with the ventral and dorsal attention networks, the what and the where and how of the world that we. Pay attention to, mm-hmm. and how those attentive networks, when they get turned on, when they catch something that feels like it's a little bit of a prediction error, and we need to go out of our automaticity and into our attentiveness. How those are making meaning and giving biases to ourself way underneath conscious awareness um, that we're we're making these predictions about the world all the time based on these meanings that have their deposit in the past.
2: Mm-hmm. And that
1: just feels, that feels so important. And, and obviously our listeners are so connected to this thought in us, but like the idea that there is a deposit of present meaning hidden, hidden in these implicit activity patterns in the brain that are found in adaptive places in the past.
0: Entirely. Like, yeah. 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 And that this, I love how they go into biasing so much in this article because they're talking about, you know, just looking at the last, uh, the last article that we reviewed with the cerebrocerebellar system that the cortex remembers what the cerebellum learned Mm. and that that is important to understand because very early on from the first moments of, of experience, we're learning reward bias. To to navigate non conscious default mode processing and to then, based on how we're making sense of the rewards that we learned so early on, when our outside world continues in its complexity, we get to then continue that biasing. It doesn't stop just because, oh, now I have language, now I have the ability to move between rooms on my own and go after things I want. No, these are all just externalizations of some of the earliest building blocks of what we learned were rewarding. Uh, Again, we, we nuanced that to not only include positive things, but the avoidance of negative things.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They have a graph and I'm skipping just a little bit ahead, but it feels so connected to their discussion on this biasing, but they have a, they have a side profile of the brain Mm. and and it's got, the different attention potential action selection rules like mapped out. They have the basal ganglia kind of in the center zone and the cerebellum. And they have all of these lines that are signifying specification and selection of energy and information. But I, I, I was blown away by the image to see the complexity of connections. So the cerebellum up to the (laughs) pre premotor premotor cortex through this like dorsal stream zone into the cortical zone, the cerebellum is looking at specification, mm-hmm. which is again that, you know, here's the cortex will retain what the cerebellum had learned. So here's a specific kind of what we should be paying attention to. Mm-hmm. But then this behavior biasing of memory learned activation of the past of how I should behave or could behave most adaptively towards a reward. That's that basal ganglia, which is like breaking apart energy and information to, to select what's important. And like, I don't know. And I, I'm finding it hard in this moment to like really give a detailed expression of like how that in some way makes me jacked. Mm -hmm. But I think giving language to the, to the prioritization of adaptability that our these systems have not just in the seven large scale but how the this these subcortical vertical organizing cerebellum and basal ganglia systems how they're selecting and biasing what we see what we feel what we hear how we it, posture ourselves towards what has previously been
0: rewarded yeah i said this on a a different podcast that i was a guest on that this is coming into so much clarity, I, I said that one of the the person asked me what are some of the things that our field and the greater public misunderstand about trauma and one of the things that came to me in that moment uh, was that it's still being I think articulated and fleshed out just how vast the reality is that Every experience of every circumstance, motion, stimuli, feeling, thought, etc. Every experience of those things has been learned. Hmm. Like that to me is one of the most misunderstood elements of our being human. We think that it's just like a, you know, that life is just like a camera you know a picture camera that we're just capturing things that are there no like we learned how to see we Mm. learned how to hear we learned how to feel we learned how to move and i don't just mean learning in a to b i'm talking Mm. about that we learned to see what was there through experience we learned to see this stop sign means stop yes but it also has implications for everything around the stop sign. It it means, yeah. am I in a car? Then it's not relevant to me unless I'm a pedestrian trying to cross the street. Then it's relevant to me. Like we mm-hmm. learn every element of our experience through relationship.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, I, and this is maybe not on my kick again. This is my soapbox, but like Freud talked about this. Freud talked about how, Yeah, his his book that I've referenced in the past of the psychopathology of everyday life, like his whole idea was to point out to people like the reason you forget numbers, the reasons why you don't remember a street sign, you know, all of these like, quote unquote, happenstance things have a reason. There's a meaning behind them. And that left. If we're as social animals left to be alone with that, it's an incredibly threatening thought. Like that is
0: black that's hole. scary, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah I do not want to touch that, because you can not understand with conscious top-down recall why I forgot
1: right, and what does it mean if if the if my implicit self is potentially threatening to the idea that I have of myself in a conscious way, like mm-hmm. the things that I'm doing actually mean something they're coming from a source of meaning in my implicit self that is challenging my explicit self. That's, that's just scary. I don't want that. And that's Freud talks about that. Like, he's like, I can't talk to people about associations freely, because people get mad at me. And, (laughs) and, and I think like, we're wrestling with this of how do we create safe relationships as humans, where we could actually explore this we could have space to ask what does this actually mean and to dwell in that space of, of questioning. They say a phrase, uh, I'm going to read two, two sections. Um, They're pretty short, but they, uh, this is quoting them implicit behavior lying outside of conscious awareness is adaptive and is not traditionally considered executive functioning, even though the activity reflects adaptive decision-making when decisions are made explicitly, we we refer to we prefer to use the term cognitive control. But mm-hmm. what you, what they're getting at there is that even these implicit behaviors are adaptive and have some sort of decisional quality to them. They then go on to say, and man, they italicized it and everything, which is I just like it. so spicy. They say sensory motor activity is never random, and like that's the challenge that, and I think goes straight to what you were saying, like we're now learning that everything that we do is learned and and you could write some really shitty stories about ourselves and others if you if you go too haphazardly with that thought but if we can hold kind of a compassionate openness to each other we can then kind of experience the beauty of learning and discovering the self with others yes that that is looking out for our best interest that is seeking quote unquote reward for us. Yeah. Even this
0: to me is the, if we're talking about the application, the clinical applications of these articles for our field, Mm. this is to me what we're talking about is everything we are was learned and recycled through the process of every moment of every day that we are. Mm. And to me, what that does for the client, especially, um, is that it removes any question of, I don't know why I am the way that I am, or I don't know why I do what I do or why I can't change what I'm doing. Like the, we say de-shaming on this podcast so much. I feel like we're (laughs) at risk of it losing its meaning, (laughs) but that to me is really what it is. Like, it does not matter how strange or pathological or distorted or whatever you think, your behavior, your relational patterns, your fixations, your compulsions, whatever they are, there's a reason for them. And I feel like if we could just open our tight grasp around the resistance to that reality, we could soften to the point of health. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and I think the, the like grip that we have is to make those, to, to categorically, and which is interesting, you could, you could replace categorically organized with modularly organized. Yes. Which would be like a neuroscience way of talking about the same thing. You're trying to say this part of the brain is bad
0: trying to simplify These other parts mm-hmm. are
1: good rather than saying, what if this thing that makes, makes maybe others uncomfortable, I'm thinking of like a disorder. What if a relational mental disorder makes people uncomfortable, but is adaptive based on the learned experiences of the client of that person and,
0: who's experiencing yeah. the disorder. Quote yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
1: And yeah, I, they, Yeah. I think that the, that clinical application is where we're so often camping out. Like I think we
0: stake our flag on that so often, Yeah, Uh, but I don't, I don't know if it can be understated. No. And that's that to me, like I'm thinking about this client that I had just this week who he's uh, in his, in his thirties and um, really anxious. Uh, That's how he identifies. Mm just like i'm just so anxious all the time and you know it affects every part of my life it affects me at work it affects how i eat it affects how i am in relationships it affects my relationship with my children you know just so anxious like really identifying with that label and mm-hmm. what it means or connotes and he was telling me about a the most recent example of what he says is like this is why i'm messed up he said You know, I've been on these dating apps and, you know, I just, they're just so meaningless to me because Mm. they're just like, it's not even real connection. It's just Mm. these pictures, these faces and these words that I don't even know if one, if I can talk to these people or if when I do, how do I know that they're, they're like genuine or that they're Mm. actually open to connection with me. And so he's like, so I've been trying to like just meet people organically, you know, sitting at this coffee shop and I literally spent 45 minutes arguing with myself of whether or not to go talk to this one person. And in that amount of time they left, Mm. that's why I messed up. Like I wonder why I'm unhappy. That's why. And the rest of the session We just spent talking about how much that fear made Mm. sense. Mm. The 45 minutes, like why his mind sent him down this path to ultimately do exactly what he did, which is avoid the connection. Mm. It's not like that process is not what's wrong with you, quote unquote. You're terrified to connect with anybody on a real level. Yeah. But you know that you need it. And so right now you're you're suspended between the chasm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I would say, I don't know this client, but I would, this is very abstract language. So I would never say this to a client, but I'd say there's, there's functional, there's a decontextualization in the memory, in the lived memory of that moment. Yeah. That moment is seen as just a example or evidence of the disorder. Yeah. but it's decontextualized from why that's actually an adaptive ordering based on the past. And that there's, there's reasons hidden in the embodied reality of the client that actually that eight five minutes was worth it. Like, yes,
0: to that's the reward. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which I think like, and I, I don't know, I've, I'm also going back, but like, that's, I think what Freud was getting at when he was talking about the death drive and like, yeah. There's actually something rewarding about this, like, and Lacan, who's a French psychoanalyst, this jouissance kind of experience, like you're actually addicted to the lack, not the presence. Um, It's this feeling of like there's a disintegration of mind that is happening, and and a, a separation of feedback loops, and so different parts of the brain are running running and doing a really good job, but they're not communicating with the rest of the team to go back to like this article's metaphor of like the team that works to create a product. It's just not talking to the rest. And the way you're kind of recounting that session, it sounds like it was just an arduous attempt to say, let's recontextualize why that is a rewarding behavior even though that makes no sense on the surface.
0: Yeah. Cause and that's what he, but at the end of the session, he was just like, if I would have known that that's what I was really doing, I felt like, I feel like I would have just snapped myself out of it and mm. just said like, what's the worst that could happen. Just go talk to him and we'll see how it goes. Yeah. But he's like, at that time I was just so stuck in this, expectation that i should have the perfect witty thing to say that's that's not too intrusive that's not creepy that's mm-hmm. that's smooth and authentic and maybe kind of novel but and just going back and forth and then oh but what if they reject me and uh oh, you know i don't know and and so i'll just like wait a little bit longer and just going back and forth on that process never being able to say hey like stick this put a stick through the spoke of the tire and like let's just like stop this thing for mm-hmm. just a second to yeah. see that we're actually afraid that nobody will understand me mm. Mm. and that in my desire to connect, they'll use that to hurt me. Mm. Yeah. That's what's really there. That makes yeah. sense. Look at all of these examples throughout your past, beginning with your mother, that that was real. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Although they. To use language from the the article, they talk they talk a lot about working memory, mm-hmm. and that working memory they're based on the development of our brains in processing energy and information. They they lay out kind of a a developmental order um, that I think could be very nuanced. But they talk about how at, at a certain level of um, working memory. There is no duality between movement and cognition. Yeah. Ideas and actions are inexor in, inexor Inex- inexorably. Inexorably linked, thank you. Um yes. that they're, they're always coupled. And I think like that's the that's the level of awareness that I is acting that. in that moment.
0: Yes. Just yeah. look at that. Like I love that you brought that point up because look at his behavior was perfectly mirroring. His internal reality inexorably, just as you said, it's perfectly mirroring the the body's. Just like, why would I move when this is going on inside? Inside is ambivalent. Outside's going to be ambivalent. Mm -hmm. And what the article posits is that's the necessity then for the assessor to become interactive. To be the working memory for the client who is stuck.
1: Yeah, provide the work of the working memory. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I love that language, and and I think they uh, they quote the. I just love when authors get spicy, and I feel like this is a <laughs> spicy way to end this article. But they say our overall goal is to move the field forward, hopefully in the spirit of the late John F. Kennedy, who once stated change is the law of life. And those who only look to the past or present are certain to miss the future. And I think in what you're saying, like his, his behaviors are matching in his internal reality and the ideas of the reality, like what is real. And this is like back to memory consolidation and the semantic memory of like, no, it is real that there's a threat here, even though, even though there's not functional connectivity or like a felt connection to that thought that is unconscious, there's still that reality of it. And the idea is that reality was real in the past.
0: Especially when you look at what parts of you are processing that reality, because Mm -hmm. it, again, this series highlights so centrally that the what they call the cognitive control system or the executive functioning frontal parietal network is not the only part and is not the first part to be processing the reality as the system is experiencing it. It is being processed in the systems that first encountered that reality, that first learned that reality. So for him, who's sitting there rigid in anticipatory fear at a coffee shop about going to talk to somebody... He's like, I felt powerless in that moment. I just couldn't do anything because Mm. I was just stuck in that rumination. Well, yeah, like these systems that are so much older than your quote unquote executive functioning are showing you the evidence of why we're not going to make any move. I don't care if it's an hour and 45 minutes. It's going to be no movement with a unexpressed and unfulfilled fantasy to do it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and there's not those, uh, there's not the um, like reflection on the action that is based on a perception. I think that's like a, they, they talk a lot about how perception ideas are connected to perception ap- action linkages. Yes. And so this, this higher order thought cognitive world is dependent upon lower brain, this bottom world
0: organization. Paradoxically um, has the self they talk about this, the self-referential um mm-hmm. uh, processing that higher order thinks it's autonomous.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's the paradox. Like when he came into my office and said, This is why, this is what's wrong with me. Yeah. It's like, how can you talk like that? <laughs> you know, the gall, like the the you know, just Internally or intrapsychically, when we have this language and this framework, we can see that, well, of course, that part of you, that thought is going to emerge because over a period of cycles, this reality stayed consistent that when you Mm -hmm. show your genuine interest and desire, other people take advantage of that and hurt you. Mm. And because you feel powerless to change that, the cycle eventually pops up. One little thought that says, this is what's wrong with you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because well, that's the most adaptive way to come in. I, this is just me very projectively analyzing, but that's probably the most adaptive self-referential cognitive story to bring to you yep. in the vulnerability of the work that you guys are doing together. That's probably what the brain is, is, then processing and predicting of like how do I talk about this to Bridger, yeah. and that's the that's the bit of adaptive information that did kind of make it up in as a self-referential cognitive expose of yeah the story this perception action linkages yeah 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 and I I want to maybe just quickly kind of slow down because I think this is a clinical kind of reality that for therapists, and, and I guess anybody who wants to be <laughs> a supportive person to another human, um, <laughs> they they talk about this perception, action, cognition, which I would then say reflection. Um, a lot of the mm-hmm. affective neuroscience scientists talk about the reflective quality of these self-referential systems higher up in the brain. So there's it's not the flexion. It's not the the inflection of the moment; it is re-representing it to itself. Yeah. This yeah. reflection. So, they talk about this test where uh, the the participant is is drawing a certain thing, and they're supposed to do it based on memory. And one of the things they note is that there's a better scoring and or like functional understanding of the client if there is a level of interactive behavior. Where the the um, administer is labeling parts, so jumping in and forcing the brain to reflect on the perception action experience, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So then, like in thinking of therapy, you know, and we this is our whole training, like talks about this so much, and this is I believe in this like so deeply, is and so so do so many other people who have way better degrees and like better seats at the table than I do, but you'll go faster if you go slower, you'll get farther if you take smaller chunks and this like chunking of the brain feels like it makes a lot of sense for the practicality of therapy that if I can pay, pay attention and be in a process of mindfulness around the perception the client is having, whether that's like in the room or about something that's happened outside perception then to actually engage action yeah so this is like you know how do you want to how do we want to talk about this do you want to express something do you want to stand up do you want to change your body posture how does your body want to act as a response to the perception and then reflect on it and in that way you'll run tons of little experiments that is very akin to like a somatic experiencing therapy where you're allowing the body To actually be connected to the brain and increasing functional connectivity. But it's if your cognitions are thinking that they're autonomous, that they're separate from these perceptions and action linkages that are based on memory, then you'll get off track. Yeah, you'll you'll, you'll,
0: stay in the rut.
1: Yeah, yeah. Chase bunny trails. You'll play
0: whack-a-mole spend 45 minutes just staring at the wall (laughs) (laughs) instead of actually getting up and doing something yeah
2: yeah
0: yeah. and it makes sense in that way um Mm -hmm. to me one of the clinical applications of the chunking process in our work together we we kind of ended talking about emotional unavailability Mm -hmm. and that what all of that really represented that, that scene that he painted saying, this is what's wrong with me, stemmed from his desire, his chronic desire for those who are unavailable to him to see him. Mm. And that, that whole scene really just was that. He, mm. in his belief that that person would be unavailable in, in whatever way, made mm. them unavailable by making himself unavailable. Hmm. Yeah, that that whole cycle was consistent because that was the, again, what the cerebellum learned was real in seeing an object outside a person over there that when we actually want to approach and share a desire, they're not going to be available. And so we're going to make the process of pursuit unavailable. And we're going to do Mm -hmm. that by making ourselves unavailable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. the, the, the rapidness of that,
0: Yeah. you know, the the speed between
1: perception and action, action. yeah, that's based on lightning fast. prediction, yeah. yeah, like just flying, yeah, and <laughs> the like necessity of slowing down, yeah. and dwelling in the in and breaking apart piece by piece the way the brain was functional functionally connecting in 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 a trend towards a reward of some kind yeah. even the, even a reward that the conscious brain says that's not rewarding that's dumb yeah. that the brain that carried the person through life in the body finds it rewarding in some way, yeah. and can we connect with that part mm. Mm. i i uh I was thinking. While I was reading this article, I don't know if we want to do it next. Um, but the article by Ed Tronic and Bruce Perry came to my mind. The multiple levels of meaning, yeah, um, from the uh, from the neurodevelopmental approach mm-hmm. um, that Perry has, um, that it came to my mind as kind of looking at oh, there's there's meaning being made even in the most unconscious processes, mm-hmm. like when my brain tells my pinky toe to move there's a meaning being made in that 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 pairs that perception to the action mm-hmm. um one thing that we don't have i don't think we have time to talk about today but there is an interesting hypothesis they make about disorders uh that are i think would be clinically considered mental disorders mm-hmm. are considered movement disorders things like ADHD and autism um, and I I I find it fascinating just to start to and allow listeners to spin up that there's fascinating connections with ADHD and a lack of rough and tumble play from the mm. affect of neuroscience, which rough and tumble play or just play in general, this imaginative play role-playing, mm-hmm. which the authors cozy all at all do mention, symbolic role-playing play for children and the importance of that. that the kind of primitive um, kind of bodily movements of these more primitive movements. Uh, and I'm using Cozio's language there of ADHD bodies, mm-hmm. bodies that have what would be clinically called ADHD, that that is, it is the body trying to and in, in, in a disintegrated way, try to f- learn a movement an action potential that's disconnected from the rest of the, functional connectivity of the brain. Um, and I think we've talked in many other episodes about the adaptability of particularly the ADHD experience, but um, that, that strategy. But I think that's yeah. a fascinating part of this article that we haven't touched on that. I think readers, I'd, I'd highly encourage readers to go play around with that.
0: Um, we could just go on a little edtronic lit review. Oh, shoot. Some, of, some of his stuff on intersubjectivity uh, is really interesting as so well. So good. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be down for it. Maybe so. Yeah. I do want to put out a teaser. Um, and we could talk about this, but, um, one thing we don't talk a lot about is why do we need sleep Mm. and why is sleep such a huge part of our day and what the role is. And part of this is because I'm, I'm (laughs) in connection with a colleague that, you know, and, I'm also reading Mark Psalms, who's done a ton of work on dreams. Dreams, yeah, and and it's just got me thinking, like, man, we really—I don't know if we conceptualize sleep as much as we need to as a field. I think you know certain sects of people, and and particularly some of the things that we talk about, like integrate the potential to organize and understand sleeping patterns. But mm-hmm. there's an—I feel like there's an interesting world that we could explore there that. I don't even know if I know of an evidence-based treatment that, that includes conceptions of
0: sleep. Yeah. Oh, but, that's, that's interesting. I'm in. Okay. Wow. <laughs> this podcast is just going to go forever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, isn't that the goal? Isn't that the goal? Yes. Um, well, cheers to cheers to Leonard Koziel. Yes.
1: Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. What a, a beautiful a masterful, Yeah. A masterful um, amalgamation of a really complex reality that Mm -hmm. I think is going to age really, really well. Um, And I hope that more people can access conceptualization of functional neurobiological reality like this, Um, because it was not the way that I was taught in graduate school. And to me, this is really where the conversation can begin for clinicians who are like, what role does the brain actually play in my office? Hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He has a, he also has a book. um, It's in 20, 2009 Um, it's called subcortical structures and cognition. And I'm going to be, I'm totally honest. I've, I've read probably two thirds of it, but not the whole thing but he continues his beautiful use of metaphor and language throughout, throughout all life. of his works and mm-hmm. and it it really is helpful as a reader to to have such like um graspable Tangible. yeah mm-hmm. metaphors to make sense of these really complex uh, neurobiological principles.
0: Um, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. We'll yeah. put that in the show notes for sure. I will. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Um, yeah. Rad.
1: Well, from here we'll keep reading <laughs> and see see where life takes us i would i will say that i think this is an interesting connection to what maybe other fields of study are feeling in the the lack of nuance to what is evidence based and this yeah. idea of like constructing the patient that we're sitting across from there's yeah. very there's very structural and rigid constructions, and then there's very nuanced constructions. And I think we're advocating for an evidence based therapy that looks at the in
0: between space, which then makes it really hard to study. Yeah. Um, yeah. 100%. And I think our field right now in psychotherapy is rife with conflict <laughs> about the materialist <laughs> conceptualization of human beings. Um, mm-hmm. that we're not reducible just to, you know, synthesizing proteins across syn- synapses, but what then relationship does neuroscience have to the world of psychotherapy?
1: Yeah. becomes really interesting when AI jumps in that picture too. Golly. It's crazy. Yeah. But not All just right. spin up on that.
0: <laughs> not, not right
1: now. Not break it. Break. Bagel break.
0: <laughs> okay. Well,
1: cheers. Big gulps.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Big gulps, huh? (laughs) All right. uh. (laughs) right. We'll we'll keep reading. Stay curious. We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you stay curious and create community around discussing the research that matters most to clinicians and researchers.
1: If you're curious to learn more about something you heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming case conceptualization trainings and community events. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at
0: If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes. Leave us a review and follow us on social media by searching the Evidence-Based Therapist Podcast.